Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. What makes for a random decision and what does that have to do with the global economy? Now, randomness is actually really difficult to predict and to make. So just how can you manufacture randomness and is there a new way to do so? Plus, what random mouse movements as you navigate a web page may tell you about your decision-making process and whether or not you like taking risks? I'm going to go off on a bit of a random tangent here. I want you to think of a number between 1 and 1,000. Now, your guess is probably not going to be the same as another person listening to this. Mine was 797. Now that selection of a number, maybe you spoke it aloud, maybe you didn't. If you've ever watched a magic show, maybe a mentalism show, you know that people can be influenced to pick certain numbers in their selection. A seemingly random selection isn't so random at all. That's a problem for magic, but actually makes enables a whole bunch of amazing magic tricks by using this phenomenon, forcing is its reference. But that's not the only place where randomness is incredibly important. Randomness is important for not just shuffling the music in your music player to shuffling the decks of cards and magic tricks or maybe in a game that you're playing. Randomness is the fundamental underpinning of most of our online existence because we use it for secure transactions and communication all the time. So generating random numbers is incredibly important. In the age of computers, generating random numbers seems easy. But the problem is, if you get a computer to think of a random number, a lot of the time it can create what is called a pseudo-random number. A number that appears random, but after a while, and once you know the algorithm that it's using to generate that random number, it becomes pretty easy to pick the pattern. Now, that may not matter if you're rolling dice in your game, for example, or even digital dice in a game that's calculating whether or not you hit an opponent or some other game of chance inside a larger computer game structure. Because the chances are of you doing that millions and millions of times and uncovering the pattern is pretty unlikely. Or likewise with shuffling the music on your music player. The problem is, actual randomness is incredibly hard to generate because when you think about it for transactions, secure transactions, you actually need randomness very well. And if someone could brute force the randomness solution and reverse engineer and hack it, that creates havoc for the world's e-commerce platforms. So generating a random number, it's actually a very difficult task. And there's a couple of different ways you can go about it. Most of the time, we rely on some actual physical mechanism because any computer algorithm that we develop can be reverse engineered and brute forced. So by taking some physical measurement, then you can actually get a better chance of actually generating a true random number. Problem is, measurement processes themselves actually introduce a bias. So you've got to try and take that out. But you could choose a lot of different things to measure, maybe atmospheric noise, thermal noise, some type of electromagnetic or quantum phenomena. Now, for example, cosmic background radiation is often used, or heat, or the cascade of electrons. When you put a xenodiode, a diode, run it into overflow in backwards direction, you cause a sudden burst of electrons to be released in a pretty random way. All these sources of entropy or chaos are effectively incredibly useful for generating noise, but noise that can be used to generate random signals. There's some other methods that are pretty entertaining to use. One that helps underpin a lot of internet transactions actually uses lava lamps. 
and cameras watching lava lamps to generate basically a random number sequence. They use the unpredictable movement of these fluid inside this liquid to help generate random numbers that are sufficiently difficult to reverse engineer and thus can be used as a form of cryptographic random number. One that's pseudo-random enough that it can't easily be hacked or reverse engineered. But what about generating better, more reliable random numbers? Well, this is where a pretty interesting approach that's not quite lava lamps, but takes another really out there mechanism was developed at ETH University in Zurich. Researchers include Linda Meiser, Julian Koch, Philip Artvotik, and Wendelin Stark, under the direction of Professor Robin Grass. Now, what they used as their basis for random number generation, a true, as they call it, random number generation, is actually DNA synthesis. And they published this in the journal Nature Communications. So how do these researchers turn DNA into a random number? Well, it's based around the principle of synthesis of DNA molecules. This is a pretty well-established method used quite a lot to produce precisely defined DNA sequences. In this case, basically the team built DNA molecules with 64 different building block positions. And each one of them, you know, there's four options in DNA, A, C, G, and T. And they were randomly located at each position. They managed to make it random by using a mixture of the four building blocks rather than actually just placing one at every step of the synthesis. So you've got a 64 long chain. In this chain, each position could have a different option of them, A, C, G, or T. Instead of precisely selecting which one they want in there, they basically mix them and allowed it to randomly pick the process itself actually, what was going to go into that slot. So it's a pretty simple synthesis process, actually produced a combination of approximately three quadrillion individual molecules. So the scientists then subsequently used a method to determine the DNA sequence of this five million, just a small pocket of these molecules rather than the quadrillions of them, but they just chose five million and they get 12 megabytes of data out that stored as zeros and ones inside a computer. Now, in terms of a randomized code, that's incredible because they managed through a simple process, only 64 combinations, 64 positions in this chain of A, C, G, and T. Now, if you know anything about permutations, you know that that will end up with a pretty high number. But the actual amount of data of, of randomized generated string of ones and zeros is actually very high. And they only sampled a small portion of it. It actually could be much more just from that simple process. So when they took this, that's great. They generated this randomized string of data, 12 megabytes of data. What could they actually see inside of this data? Because as we talked about before, you have to be very careful with randomness. Sometimes parts of the process or even the measurement itself actually leads to what's not completely random. So what they saw in the distribution of A, C, G, and T was it wasn't completely even. Now, maybe the synthesis method itself leads to the G and the T getting integrated more frequently in the molecules than the A and C. So that highlights a problem, right? So obviously A and C were coming up less than G and T. So maybe there's a bias in the system, but that can be corrected. As we talked about before, we're used to trying to smooth out and make more random our randomized signals. If we pick up a measurement bias or maybe a process bias, you can employ a bias algorithm to basically balance out that bias in the process. Now, we might say, well, aren't you tilting your finger on the scale there? Yes, but we're trying to correct what would otherwise have ruined the randomization process. So they were able to correct this bias with a simple algorithm, thereby generating what would classify then be as a perfectly natural process produced random number. Now, 
the point here was to develop a new means of random number generation. So what Professor Grass and his team were trying to show, that a chemical reaction itself can be used to produce perfect strings of randomized numbers. This is good because you can actually automate this in an interesting way, in a more streamlined way than, say, watching a lava lamp with a camera. You can generate huge quantities of randomness and store it in an incredibly small space, a test tube, rather than a much more complicated mechanism like rolling lots of dice or significant scientific apparatus to measure cosmic background microwave radiation or watching a lava lamp. Instead, in this case, you can rely on a pretty well-defined process, a chemical process at that, to actually generate your randomness. That is pretty cool because you can actually then store it in the test tube and read it out in digital form later, which is nearly impossible in other methods. You always have some analog to digital conversion, which introduces its own issues. This is a pretty novel technique for generating randomness, which is very helpful, as we talked about earlier, for enabling secure communications and true randomness used in everything from gambling all the way up to secure transactions that power our digital economy. It's great research published in the journal Nature Communications. Again, lead author on this paper was Linda Meiser, with other authors including Koch, Arthrodic, Vendelin, Heckel, and Grass. And there's one lying right in the palm of your hand, typically if you use a desktop computer, for example, a mouse. Now, lots of different websites and also capture techniques use the movements in your mouse to determine if you are a real person or if you are a robot. But they can also be used to analyze people's behavior and assess the comparison or their perception of risk. And that's what an interesting paper by lead authors like Paul Stillman from The Ohio State University and published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, Paul Stillman collaborated with Melissa Ferguson, a professor of psychology at Yale, along with Ian Krabjicks, a professor of psychology at Ohio State. Now, what they were looking at was gambling and trying to assess risk or people's perceptions of risk, like a risky bet or safe choice, to determine if you could use the shaking of a mouse or the slight subtle changes in someone's use of a mouse as an example to see if you could determine if they were a risk-taking person or someone who was a bit more conservative. The main thing they found was that people whose mouse drifted more towards the safer option on the screen, even when they ended up taking that risky bet, may be more risk-averse than their choice would actually otherwise indicate some kind of subconscious or unconscious movement towards the safer option, even though they may be a risk taker at the end, actually taking that risk. That could, they could see the actual conflict in people were feeling when making the choose, simply through the movements of the mouse. Because a lot of the time, a mouse moves just on its own, more or less. You know, you slight subtle shakings or vibrations in the hand. Some people, when they're reading something, for example, like to scroll and select all the text on the page. Others will move the mouse around aimlessly. You can get a lot of interesting data about a person's psychology or habits just from studying their interactions with either a phone or with a mouse on a computer. Now what they were finding was that how much the hand is drawing towards a particular choice 
can help reveal a lot about how difficult it was to make that decision for them, or the level of uncertainty that they were feeling around it. Now, what was interesting about that is now they had this mouse movement model that they could sort of track to see if someone was a risk-taking or risk-adverse person, they were surprised at how accurately they could use this to predict the choices in the future. Now, they took 652 people across three different studies, and they measured participants' mouth movements as they made around 215 decisions on various gambles or events, like basically decision points. Each gamble was different, with some with bigger risks and more reward than others. And each participant's mouse always started at the bottom center of the screen. When the trial began with two boxes appearing on the top left and top right corners. So again, you have to make a large movement of the mouse and you start basically dead in the middle at the bottom. So whatever way you go, you have to move. So it's not like one will be predisposed to one side or the other. It is basically you have to move a large distance. So you've got to see which way you're going to go. Now, an example of a trial is a box offered them a 50-50 gamble, 50% chance of gaining $10 or a 50% chance of losing. And the other box contained a certain option that was usually around $0. So the question was, how often would people move towards the riskier option or not? And also, how were the mouse movements, the path that the mouse took to get there, to actually, is that telling us something about the choices that they make? A lot of the time, participants basically took a relatively straight path from where they started to the choice they were making. They were decisive once they started to move the mouse. Other times, there was more of a conflict going on, some time of internal debate. Instead of making a straight path from where they were started to the decision they wanted to make, they sort of meandered around, head towards one option and then go to the other one. So the length of time taken to make the choice, along with the actual motion path to get to the choice, is very interesting. So they took this data set that they collected and then started to analyze the results using the method of mouse movements as basically a metric. I'm not so much concerned with which option they chose, more or less meaningless for the purpose of the study, but the connection of the mouse movements to the decision-making process was what they were really interested in. So they took a group of one of the trials and said, okay, everyone who made the same choice of one gamble, if they looked at the mouse movements, could they then make a prediction on how they would go on a similar gamble, a similar propositional choice? And it turns out that they could, simply by measuring the mouse trajectories to see if they veered towards the opportunity choice in the first time. So with that, they could actually cohort or differentiate between people, even when they made the same choice. So you can actually start to see the thought process a bit in the physical measure, which otherwise would be near impossible to do, just purely from the data alone. So what they then tried to play with was see if they could manipulate how much risk people were willing to take and whether it would be visible in their mouse trajectories. So they told some participants to treat the gambles like a stock trader would. That is, not so much focus on individual choice, but to build a, a portfolio of winning choices, a long-term view. So maybe you got one wrong at the start, but that doesn't really matter. This is to try and encourage them to take more risks or think more collectively about the risks that they're taking. Then, with this in mind, they watched the mouse trajectories to see if it changed their movements. They found it was pretty interesting. When they looked at the mouse tracking, these, when they had this collective stock trader-like mentality, they were less conflicted when they accepted the gambles. They were pretty much accepting, yeah, I'll, I'll take the risk. But when they rejected them, it was much, much more conflicted because they were over-analyzing or overthinking the situation. 
Now this is interesting because this is just one physical motor movement that they're measuring and assessing here. But scrolling on a phone could provide similar decision-making process. A little bit harder to track, but can be done. So could eye movement or any other signs of hesitation. But a sign of hesitation like scrolling or moving your mouse can yield some insight into internal conflict. Now that's interesting in and of itself, but it is helpful to help researchers develop psychological tests that could be then implemented into further surveys and work. So now that you have a measure on how long a decision takes someone, that gives you a key piece of insight, which you could use and apply in other pieces of research. A lot of the time, a lot of psychological research, for example, is delivered via surveys on screens. Now, analyzing mouse behavior at the same time gives you another thing to look at. So not just which box you picked it in the survey, but how long you spent on that page and what your mouse movements were like could give indication to the decision-making process as well, which can help researchers get better insights with the data they collect through these types of psychological surveys. And anything that can help get more understanding of someone's conscious or unconscious decision-making processes generally makes life easier for this type of research. Now, there's some interesting research published in the journal Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences and shows what we can learn just simply from what seems like absent-minded scrolling and moving of mouses. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. We look at how randomness can be formed by using DNA combinations and ways we can measure the risk-taking behaviour of someone from their random mouse movements. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.